we talk about burnout and resiliency at an individual level, but I believe it's our um, responsibility as leaders in health systems to be organizationally resilient and create the systems that do not require our nurses and our frontline staff to have to tap into their internal resiliency time and time and time again to sustain work. We need to be able to create a variety of programs that offer resiliency in their workspace so that they can recover from what you just described, a very emotionally taxing job. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on the Amplify Nursing podcast, we talk with Dr. Danny Bowie, a visionary leader whose creative approach to managing the behemoth that is nurse staffing has led Danny to the role of Chief Nursing Officer at Trusted Health. There, she is at the vanguard of transforming the modern American nursing workforce. We talk with Danny about the importance of building institutional resilience, the challenges and complexity of the current nursing workforce, and her vision of changing the entire healthcare workforce ecosystem. So hi, Danny. Hi, Angela. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming and, and talking today. Oh, my pleasure. It's like a two in one. I get to talk with a really good friend and we get to make it public. So let's go. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. All right. So why don't we start with, how about you tell us your story? How did you get into nursing? I really appreciate that that question. And obviously you heard me kind of take a breath in. Um, everyone has a, a story of you know their journey, their career journey, and and I definitely have a, a story. And my goal here is just to kind of summarize it, and I think some key points. But essentially, Angela, I don't have anyone in my family that's in healthcare. So nursing was a foreign concept to me. It wasn't even something that was in my mind growing up as like an opportunity. What was in my mind as an opportunity for my career choice was being a dentist. And you may be like, well, that's kind of strange. Why Why is that? Well, I realized at a young age that I would go in at, at, to the dentist and get work done. And oftentimes I wouldn't see a woman doing the work. So I was really kind of inspired to pursue a path that seemed to be not as saturated with women in the in the dentistry practice. And keep in mind, this is as a 16, 17-year-old. So I didn't do a lot of research. It was just my analysis of experience. And so that was what led me on my journey. And when I started you know, my um, college experience, I was a biology major and, and started down this path, soon realizing that I really didn't have a passion for people's teeth. And uh, I needed to find a career where I aligned with the mission and kind of the calling of helping people, but also was challenged academically and 
was able to also be self-sufficient, right? I was looking for a, a variety of things that would offer me these choices. And I landed on nursing, but I didn't get into nursing school the first time. And so I was a, I uh, had to take a gap year, went to community college and I worked at Quiznos. I lived with my parents. You know, I thought that was the lowest of the low. And I, I hope that there was nowhere but up from there. And then I was accepted into nursing school my second second try because I had a transfer and it was very competitive at the time. And I had a, a scholarship from um, Providence Health System and they paid for my last two years of school if I'd work for their health system in the state of Oregon for three years, de de depending on where the need was. So, you know, it was a sense of calling but also the ability to be challenged academically and be able to come out, you know, in four years as a woman and be self-sufficient in, you know, making a career and, and having a, a living that I could uh, work from. So that's how I landed in nursing, but we can talk more about the transformation if you want uh, later on or whatever you, whatever you desire, tell me. <laughs> Well, definitely. But I, I think it's so important to let people know. I don't think people understand how incredibly competitive it is to get into nursing school because we have such a shortage of clinical sites, clinical instructors, and didactic instructors. And it's, it's not because we don't have good people coming in. It's because we don't have the people to educate them. And that's so incredibly difficult considering we're looking at, I mean, we're going to be talking soon about your area of expertise, which is staffing. And, you know, this is such an incredibly challenging time, I'm sure for you, considering the shortage we have of practitioners of all levels at the bedside. And this is a big part of the reason why is that we can't bring aid people into the profession because we don't have enough seats to train them in. You're absolutely right. Right. And it was a battle to stay committed to the dream of being a nurse when you get denied. And then your second time around, I actually got accepted only into one school and I'm committed to our profession, right? Like we can talk about the journey and the, the ways that we partner and we love the work that we're doing as nurses. And it's, it's sad to me that potentially we're losing those types of individuals because of what you mentioned, the lack of capacity, it's not the qualified candidates, it's the lack of capacity to train and accept people into the program and build up that, that healthy pipeline. So it's a great call out. So you made it through nursing school, you got your scholarship, <laughs> you were working for Providence and how did you end up where you are now, which is the trusted health? I did. I made it through and everyone can attest any nurse, you know, your first year of practice, you're like, whoa, this is, this is a lot. I know, especially as a bachelor's prepared nurse, I was like, I can write a great paper, but now I am learning what it is to really care for patients when you hit practice. Um, Providence was a really great experience for me. And also I look back on my career and the manager that hired me, you know, oftentimes you have this question, like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I, in five years, I became the manager of the the unit that I worked on. And I would not have said like in your job, doing your work, right? Like I, I would, I didn't, that wasn't even crossing my mind, but through my journey of self-discovery of who I am and more about the profession, because I'm sure Angela, you have experienced this too, is that I didn't really know much about nursing and what the options were and how I could work in this space 
at the bedside, but beyond the bedside. And so I realized that I was really good at like system management, people management, and wanted to formally train myself in that space. So I, I finished a master's in nursing administration through Ban Vanderbilt online and wanted to get all those skills to start to lead people. And so in five years, I moved into leadership as a nurse manager and really cut my teeth at what does it mean to lead the team that actually trained me as a, as a baby nurse. And so that was kind of a really transformational moment for me to, to move from bedside to leadership and lead a team through that transformation and having them watch and be somewhat skeptical and then ultimately supporters of me as their nurse manager. So that was one piece of the journey. Another piece, which we can talk a little bit more about is I soon realized that I was outgrowing the space of being a nurse manager and wanted more opportunity for the system management that I recognized I was really quite intrigued with. And so twofold, I decided to go back for my doctorate. That's where you and I met at Yale. And then I pursued a new opportunity for working and became a system director of clinical resources for eight hospitals with the goal of implementing staffing and scheduling technology and bringing workforce transformation. I had no experience doing that work. So I, uh, that then kind of pivoted me, pivoted me into the space that I've been living in for the last 10 to 12 years of workforce transformation and expertise, which I'm happy to elaborate on a little bit more, but I want to make sure, you know, if there's questions or things I need to highlight, Angela, let me know. Otherwise I'll keep going. On my no, no, please keep going. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So when I pivoted into staffing and scheduling, I actually had this foundational moment in my life where I, as I was pursuing, like, who do I want to be and how do I want to lead? And I think what is important to call out for those listening in healthcare is that I wasn't given a lot of opportunity to actually try new things because I was a relatively young leader and the mindset and culture in healthcare is like, you have to be doing this work for 20 years before you're given a chance of any type of promotion uh, opportunity within a health system. And I didn't prescribe to that ideology. I recognized that if you looked at my outcomes as a nurse manager, I was actually a high achieving nurse manager in my in terms of outcomes. My, my team was satisfied. We were hitting our productivity. Our nurse sensitive indicators were great. And I realized that I didn't wanna do the same work for the next 10 years because I'd mastered that work. And so um, a leader did give me opportunity to lead in this new space of workforce transformation. And I'm really appreciative of those leaders that are willing to take a chance on someone that didn't have any experience, but it also was a job that like not a lot of people wanted. So I stepped up and said, Hey, I'm willing to do a transformation of a eight, eight hospital health system and bring in tech that I have no experience, but I, I think I have the energy to learn. And that really set the course of my career in starting to learn technology that's critical to workforce transformation, but also practice and policy and roles and how to design the whole infrastructure. And what aided me not only was the practice, but then I you know, started my doctoral program at the same time and decided to uh, move down the space of understanding scheduling and staffing from the academic perspective. And really, I wanted to know what research was out there and was there any type of predictive models that existed for scheduling? Because as a nurse manager, I really did not like making schedules and I wasn't doing it well because I had no analytics. It was like, I feel like I need to schedule my nurses like this, but you know, 
it wasn't supported by data. And I hated that feeling. Like it was very disheartening to me and uncomfortable. And, but I tried my best. And to me, that wasn't good enough because I knew my best wasn't sufficient in knowing all the variables needed to build a schedule. So, you know, went down that path at Yale um, where you and I met and really honed in on the research and the academic component of workforce and then, you know, paired it with workforce transformation. That was the beginning. Fast forward to where I am now, you know, 12 years later, I've spent my career helping health systems redesign workforce and just building on what I've learned in terms of technology, practice, new programs, flexible programs, and have helped around five to seven health systems take the, these ideas and build a roadmap to implementation in terms of flexible programs, in terms of centralized staffing models and office, offices that are important to ops. And then technology, I think is imperative. I'm a big believer in bringing in tech into the space and moving out of the manual paper space. And that is what brought me to Trusted Health, a company that has really innovative tech and transforms the space of staffing in a way that I had never experienced before, but had been looking for since I started my doctoral journey in terms of automation, predictive capability, AI to help with incentive programs. I mean, it's just all there. And I fell in love and joined the team about two years ago. So that's that's where I am today. And hopefully not too long-winded answer in, in how I ended up in, in my job today. No, it's the perfect, it was the perfect sized answer. Right. I think there's there's so much in there that I want to talk about. You know, so many people are talking about the differences in how generations work. The older generations of people are sort of complaining that the younger generations that come up, you know, don't have a work ethic. They don't want to work hard. You know, they feel very entitled to how they want to work. I, I don't believe that that's true. I believe that the, the generation has a different set of priorities. And I think that they're, they've actually learned from older generations of people, watched people work until they were 65 and then, you know, live a short life of, of reprieve and then die and not really enjoy the whole, their, the whole of their life. And they look at that and they say that I don't really want to do that. I want to do something that's fulfilling. I want to be able to work to do things that are exciting to me in other parts of life. One would think that we would encourage this in nursing because um, nursing is such an incredibly emotionally draining work, right? It can be so, so challenging. We're constantly talking about burnout. We're constantly talking about how do we make our people more resilient? So we would, you would think that you would want for people to have that philosophy of balance so that we can keep them at the bedside. And I know that you're you were talking just a few minutes ago about flexibility and staffing. What are you seeing in terms of trends? What does flexibility mean to people? That's a great question and one that I've been pondering for the last five years as I as I'm building flexible workforces. I, I'm also like, what does this mean? Because what you just said, Angela, you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of there is differing. Um, priorities among the workforce in terms of even generation and roles that were that are in in terms of nursing and expectation. And so one thing that I've uncovered here at Trusted, I've done a couple different surveys to start to understand what does flexibility mean to the front line 
and I've been talking to nurse leaders across the country, it's really individualized. So I've realized that flexibility is really individualized and that's an important component to just call it like, it, it means something to each person, but there are some common threads or trends that I think are important for, for the listeners today, particularly if you are leading health systems. And one is that we should evolve our work offerings that we have to the workforce in terms of their stages of life. So if you're a new nurse, you may have more flexibility in terms of like shifts that you can pick up. You want to work more, like it's your drive just to like, I want to make money. I want to buy that house, buy that car as an example. And then as life progresses and, and things happen, I find that a lot of the workforce, they may have a family, they may have children. And with that comes a certain expectation upon them in their personal life that they want more flexibility in terms of, you know, different shift lengths, less hours to work, but they're still committed to the bedside. And we as health systems should be able to work with them. And, and that's where I've started to see the gap is that oftentimes a lot of health systems build very traditional roles. It's still your 12 hour shift. It's still 36 hours a week. There's less offering in terms of part-time and particularly what I would describe as like a gig workforce, meaning uber flexible. You have the choice and opportunity to pick up, pick up shifts. It just doesn't, hasn't been set as a priority um, and so I think there's this misalignment there in terms of, you know, we know that it's going to transform through the career trajectory of that individual, but we as organizations are not nimble in responding to that. And I'm not blaming the leaders either in terms, um, I think one of the most challenging aspects is that there was a lack of technology to help support some of these flexibility flexible programs. If you build a gig workforce, the scalability when you do it manually is like pretty much impossible. You're calling people, you're texting people, you're trying to get them to pick up shifts. If you have the right tech, you can automate it. And it's a self-sufficient, self-sustaining program. It's amazing. And so I think in terms of these programs coming to life, we now have the technology to support those programs and make it a reality. Um, and that speaks to one component that I think is important. You talk, we talk about burnout and resiliency at an individual level, but I believe it's our responsibility as leaders in health systems to be organizationally resilient and create the systems that do not require our nurses and our frontline staff to have to tap into their internal resiliency time and time and time again to sustain work. We need to be able to create a variety of programs that offer resiliency in their work life, you know, workspace so that they can recover from what you just described, a very emotionally taxing job. I would totally agree with that. I think that's such a creative way to look at it. And I think that part of the reason where we get stuck, and I, I'm not sure that you have had this experience, but I know that I've had the experience where we can be very rigid in our thinking in terms of nursing. We do things because it's always been done that way. It's very hard to change things. I feel like we're progressing a little bit with looking at evidence-based practice. People are getting a little bit more savvy in terms of changing things a little bit. I think the advent of the DMP was huge in that mm -hmm. to be able to take a look at like, well, what's out there in the literature? Let's do a small pilot. Let's see if it works. Does it work? Yes. It's scalable. Let's try and scale it. I think that's the skill set of bringing that to the bedside and that whole idea of thinking of let's keep trying things and reiterate is so incredibly helpful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We know, right? You and I are both DMPs. 
And we know that it takes, you know, 17 years or so to get research into practice. And there's so much power in practice change and testing things out. And so I just think it's like fundamentally important for our leaders to be open to trying and trialing and piloting like and 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 testing out what does or doesn't work with the workforce. I think what's important to note and what I've experienced in my practice and how I advise health systems, there isn't a magic solution. There's no like you do this one thing. I wish mm-hmm. if we do this one thing, you're going to you're going to turn the ship all around. You usually have to do about five to six different strategies. Um and one thing I I didn't mention but some of the work that I'm doing the surveys we'll be publishing them we'll put a report out there but self-scheduling is actually a really important ask of the frontline nurses and I was surprised by that because I was like that's pretty like foundational but kind of like old school a little bit you know I mean it, it should be happening in practice so I was actually really surprised when I asked 500 nurses what is your most flexible desire and their number one was self-scheduling the majority said self-scheduling but the caveat behind that was that they wanted to build a schedule that that wasn't moved. And that's not really a reality today in health systems. You build a schedule, but oftentimes we balance a lot to try and meet those needs. And so I would really like to think differently around self-scheduling. And as I talk, like the advent and, and the use of technology is transforming the space how can we get creative and test out a self-sustaining workforce in terms of how they build their schedule? Like, let's stop heavily managing them. Say, this is what you're hired to. We're going to give you the tools to be able to pick up the shifts, claim the shifts, and trade with your your employee, your friends, and you manage it. This is your practice. This is what you're hired to. You manage your your time. You manage your schedule. You manage your pay. And of course, you put safeguards in place in terms of patient safety and not dipping below certain staffing levels, but really creating more autonomy. And I think professionalism among the frontline to manage their schedule when they're given the tools and the expectations are set for them. And right now, historically and traditionally, most of these practices are pretty, I would try like kind of like patriarchal, you know, matriar- matriarchal, like we're, we're, we as managers are having to do so much for our team and I, th- I think we need to flip the script and let our team do so much for the way they're, the units run and how they can build, you know, teamwork together. I feel like that sense of autonomy is so incredibly helpful. You know what I mean? When you have the autonomy to do what it is that you want to do, it makes your job so much easier because you you don't feel so put upon. And sometimes they're really easy fixes to make. You know what I mean? Angela, you did say something that I think is important in it's like, it can be minor fixes, right? So oftentimes we think about this work and it's like so overwhelming because you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much I need to change. How am I going to get started? And there's minor things that can be done to start to make the transformation a reality. Um, Use the technology that you have today. Start using it. Start optimizing it look at some of your practices. How can you start to offer more flexible offerings in terms of, you know, part-time or gig work? There's ways that you can start to make a dent in this that I think isn't as overwhelming as some of the projects I've done is like total transformation and it's pretty overwhelming, but we do it and it it's really radical and fun to do, but it, it takes like two to three years. So where can we start today that would take, you know, 
three months to start to test and experience the outcomes associated with some of these minor modifications. I I totally agree with that. And I, my experience has been when you raise the bar and you set really high expectations for nurses, they rise to the occasion. And we don't often always do that. We, we sometimes keep really, you know, tight, tight reins on everyone. And we, we don't allow them to live up to their full potential. I uh, wrote a, an article and it's kind of cheesy, but I, in, I introed it and said, um, the more you use the reins, the less people are going to use their brains. <laughs> so <laughs> I cheesy. love that. It's true though. But it's what you just said. Yeah. We have really talented people doing work that they can do so much more. And if given the opportunity yeah. and I, again, this is not any to throw shade on any of the leaders in health systems, because it, it can be hard to do this. I think we're in a very complex org design that creates some of these um, challenges. But if there is some creative things like loosen it up for your front line and get them engaged with decision making and how to approach this. And it, it's a game changer for sure. I'm so impressed with how you think about things at a systems level. How do you expand your thought processes and what are things that you've been doing that allow you to grow as a leader? I think it starts with curiosity, honestly. You describe yourself as, you know, you're open to other people's perspectives and I'm just a very curious individual. And so it kind of took a variety of different paths to to help build into this systems thinking. First and foremost, I mean, I I really believe in education. Going through our our doctoral program, our DMP, we went to a really great school, Yale, that had a lot of academic rigor. I mean, that, that was, you know, just prolific in sense of reviewing all the literature, understanding what's out there in terms of this um, kind of, you know, technology workforce space that I've been looking at. And then I also think it's really important to understand practice. And so I stay connected professionally um, across the nation in terms of like AONL. And I was in some um, local chapters when I was in Oregon and Washington to know what are leaders doing at the forefront? And how are they approaching some of their workforce challenges. Presently, I actually, I lead a podcast as well called The Handoff. And I bring in leaders across the country because I want to know like, what are you doing in terms of workforce or just in terms of your expertise? And it's been so insightful to hear how different nursing leaders across the country are transforming the space you know, I have I have leaders from tech that are talking about the new technology and reducing, you know, the documentation burden and how to kind of marry that world between the um, IT team and the nursing team. You know, that's on the podcast. And then I also have operational leaders that have are leading health systems and talking about, you know, hospital at home and virtual care and in terms of transformation. And then nurse scientists and researchers. Um, recently, I just had a conversation with uh, Dr. Dana Walmack, and it was, I love that conversation. If anyone listening, like you should look up the handoff podcast for that conversation. She talks about ambient data and how there's digital dust everywhere. And there's so much opportunity to harness that information from the systems we touch as nurses to create the story, to create proactive behavior, to lessen the workload and intensity of what we're experiencing, and that it's about organizational resiliency. So I'm learning a lot from her. So I really just try and connect with leaders across the country 
obviously read research around this space that is new and and then also just talking to those that aren't even in this space how how is workforce being handled in spaces like banking <laughs> that's really an old school but i have leaders in banking i talk to uh technology you know so it's trial and error finally i'll end it with that you know I have really tried a lot. Like I will try things in practice and it doesn't work sometimes. And that helps reform my systems thinking as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think some of my biggest gains were trying things out that, you know, from the outside, you could say, oh, that failed miserably, but you were like, oh no, it's very exciting what I learned from it. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, being able to do that in a health system and create those spaces of like culture of inquiry and innovation is just so important to, to build that muscle memory. Like we can learn and now we need to put into practice. So the muscle memory of, of systems thinking and how that translates into practice. So you mentioned this, this word a couple of times, organizational resilience. Do you want to kind of define that? And what do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, that's coming from my conversation with Dr. Dana Walmack. This last season of the podcast, I asked our guests to open up with like a nursing, a story, a patient care story that was particularly impactful to them. And Dana's story really resonated with me because her story was one where there was just a lot of dysfunction in terms of a test that needed to be done for a patient before discharge. It got missed. And so she had to come back around and rally the troops to get the test done. And you and I both know that that's a lot of people involved, a lot of time, a lot of coordination, even just for one test. You know, I mean, it seems like one test shouldn't be this hard, but with all the hands and players in healthcare, and especially when you're trying to transfer a patient, Dana, you know, brought that concern up to her nurse manager and her nurse manager said like, well, I'm so glad that we have nurses like you. That really resonated with me because Dana said, you know, that changed the way that she approached things because she was like, that's not right. It's not up to the individual nurse to be resilient and adaptable enough to be like managing all this, though we do, right? What she just highlighted is what I think all of us experience in practice of adaptability because something didn't go right. And then now we're having to work really hard to bring it together. And so organizational resilience is looking at the systems and the processes to ensure that we're building in those safeguards for the workers, that it's not up to the individual worker in terms of, you know, you just need to be more resilient and adaptable to your situation. What is the processes, for instance, that when that test got missed to one, make sure it doesn't get missed and how to create better systems in place so that we're not having to do, you know, what seems like, like, magical work. Like we're working really hard to make things happen. And it kind of goes into like to, to air as human, right? Like it's all like the Swiss cheese then finally lines up and creates the whole. And that's why an error happens. And so I think it's a call to all of us to learn more about how do we create better systems with that resilience component and stop terming it in terms of like individual resilience. Cause I think that that's unfair to any worker of, you know, working in a broken system is not something that an individual needs to be responsible and feel, you know, I have to be exceptionally resilient to sustain in my career. So I'm not fully, you know, I'm not an expert in that space by any means, but something that is resonating with me and I'm sitting with, and I want to learn more about, because I believe that 
is what the future should be as leaders and healthcare workers of how to design better systems. It is not the people that are to blame. Um, it's just the complexity of what we're working in right now. It can be so challenging when you spend your whole day swimming upstream against processes that are inefficient or they're not super helpful or you're you're seeing the gaps in them and it, it just makes for a really, really frustrating day and mm-hmm. a really long career. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it does. And, and, you know, and why we're potentially seeing a workforce that is leaving or demanding something different and quite yeah. honestly, they should be demanding something different. I'm demanding something different. Like we we need to do this differently. And why? Because it's people's health. It's their life. Like the yeah. the stakes are high here. Yeah, they really are. I think that you're doing great work. I think that the things that you're doing have the potential to make such a positive impact on not just staffing and workforce, but downstream patient outcomes, because when you have staffing and a workforce that works well together and people aren't stressed out about what's going on and they have the people that they need and the efficiency that they need, then you're only going to have better experiences for the patients. Absolutely. And I think, Angela, I mean, you, I'm inspired by you because you, you also, you teach the next generation. So you're teaching the next generation, you practice as a clinician, and then um, you also do, you know, such amazing work professionally and legislatively. And that's another component behind this workforce space is legislation that gets put out there in terms of staffing. And, you know, that to me is also a call out. Uh, I am not a supporter of, of staffing ratios, but we see that time and time again across the nation. Um, And it just simplifies the state of nurse staffing in a way that doesn't solve the root issue of like, you don't have enough nurses to go where they go. So I would love to learn from you in terms of, you know, more advocacy work in this space um, to continue to fight, you know, for good staffing, safe staffing, but with some different solutions outside of, uh, you know, a number, a ratio number to to solve it, which to, in my opinion, just simplifies it and doesn't, doesn't help address the root causes of not enough nurses. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. It it really isn't about, it's not about that. That's a Band-Aid solution. It's frustrating for me because I see I'm I'm an anesthesia person. So I'm taking care of one person at a time where I'm only going as quickly as the surgeon can move. You you know what I mean? So I'm isolated, but I see my nursing colleagues, the OR nurses that I work with, the ICU nurses, the nurses on the floor when we go down for emergencies, our PACU nurses, I see them working and I see what it is that they're doing and I see their frustrations that are that are very well highlighted. And it isn't often so much of that they have too many patients, it's they have too much nonsense that they're expected to do. Hmm. And it's not, no one's complaining about taking care of patients. Nobody. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's, it's really rare. And I work in, I, I'm going to preface this by saying that I work in an academic medical center, you know, where we have, we are resourced, right? So I, I understand that there, are, I'm sure there are places in the country and rural areas, things like that, where people are getting stretched. But for the most part, you know, the university system that I work for is very responsible about placing acuity, the right number of nurses with the acuity. 
and all those different kinds of things. I don't think that that system needs to be hogtied by a number per se. Yeah. And it, you know, there, it, what frustrates people is the nonsense. It's not taking care of the sick patients. Absolutely. Yeah. The documentation demand, uh, even, you know, I, I focus a lot on our RN workforce and our clinical workforce, but the support staff is just as critical in making things flow. And oftentimes the energy we put into solving the staffing crisis and the programs I put in place, I would love to see those programs for environmental services, our food service group, transportation, um, those are, uh, in, in addition to, you know, um, CNAs and tax, et cetera. I mean, those are critical players in terms of, if you think of inpatient and how things run. And so we well, can solve one space, but if we're not solving the whole thing, it's just, you know, you get one space working really, really well. And then one space is like, well, we don't have any transporters. We don't have anyone to clean that room or and it just backlogs. And, and so we have to think about it holistically. And I've never been given the opportunity to really do the whole workforce. And Angela, I tell you, I'm drooling. Like, I want to do it so bad. <laughs> I want to do it all. I want to know, like, it's not just nursing. The thing I'll say to our listeners, the nursing space is the most complex optimization scheduling problem that exists. I knew this because I studied it in my doctoral program. And what you learn in nursing, it can be applied to your other disciplines, professions, those in the health system. So if anyone's listening and they want to try their whole workforce, let me know, reach out to me because I know we can create an amazing ecosystem of workforce infrastructure that would change the game. Wow. Good luck with that. That's incredible. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I don't even have anything to say to that. I'll-, yeah. I'll I'll throw one more thing out there. Here's one of my other ideas. If I'm getting a little, a little provocative, you talked about rural care. Mm -hmm. My heart goes out to the rural health systems because you are absolutely right. There is under-resourcing. There's lack of flexibility in terms of what they can draw from compared to a metro center, a large academic medical center. And so I've often, and again, anyone listening, I have dreamed about bringing together rural centers that are local, you know, so close enough where you could share resources. We have technology, you know, I have technology here at Trusted that can do it. And there's associations where, you know, rural health systems are part of an association. And so you can pool your resources and start to create a pool within that association that allows for you to support your rural communities more effectively. Now it requires the workforce to be nimble and flexible and willing to work in the space. You probably need to comp them differently, but there is ways to create liquidity of resources in these rural spaces. And I just, I really want to test out these models um, that I think could help the under underserved areas that desperately need the the flexibility and the adaptability of the workforce and the technology to drive it. And unfortunately, oftentimes they don't have the margin to spend on that, the bandwidth to do it. So I would love to work some with some rural settings to develop some some of these models that I think could change the game for them as well. Well, that is fascinating. And I can't wait to hear more about that next time. I yes. think that's going to, that's going to be a really cool conversation to see how it all flows together. 
it's my hope if we can find some some players in the space to do some of this work um it needs to happen and i would love to be able to serve those areas that you know are stretched thin and see what we can do to start to open up resourcing in some new ways hello angela hello marion how's it going it's amazing how are you I'm great. I really enjoyed your conversation with Danny hitting on what I feel like are a lot of topics that we've been talking about over the years of this podcast. And um, she had some really interesting takes on them. Yeah, she is. She's really phenomenal. She's so incredibly smart and creative that everything she touches, she leaves a really, really unique imprint on. And I think that she has such great ideas when it comes to workforce transformation. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated both her views and your views on how we need to think about the autonomy of the nurses when it comes to not just scheduling. I mean, that seems like low-hanging fruit, right? But like in the entirety of the work that we're doing, autonomy is a big component and trying to get health system leaders and health systems overall to really understand and start to embrace that is going to be super important for the longevity of the profession. Agreed. I think there's a a little bit of a dichotomy in what we expect from nurses, right? We expect professionalism and then we treat them like people who can't think for themselves. So when you're doing things like that, it makes it really, really difficult for the system as a whole to operate in a really professional manner. And I think that, like you said, by giving people the opportunity to have autonomy over their work, not just their schedule, but their work in general, makes it a much better workplace and a richer experience for everyone involved. I could not agree more. The standards we give to nurses in terms of this being a very highly educated professional workforce, and yet so paternalistic in terms of the things that we allow nurses to do or not do, and who gets to say what nurses can and cannot do, it is so counterproductive and so goes against everything we're trying to educate nurses to be. You know, I think, you know, Danny. And the work that she's doing in this area is is going to be really helpful. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. With special thanks to Jonathan Zhu for his assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at PennNursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.